Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Victoria Barnett. Dr. Barnett served as one of the general editors for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works, the English edition, and worked as the director of the programs on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. That is a mouthful. (laughs) Dr. Barnett, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Um, and are you, you're newly retired, yes? Uh, well, not so new, it's been about a year. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank I think I, I just picked that up at our, um, our International Bonhoeffer Society yeah. AR meeting. Um, well, congratulations. <laughs> I'm a big fan of your work. Um, so it's great to make this happen. Merry Christmas, Merry Belated Christmas. Thank you, yeah, Merry Christmas and happy happy 2021 to you. <laughs> yeah, let's hope it's a much better year. Yes, we, we're all hoping this. <laughs> so um, I was wondering if I could get a little bit of your background. Um, how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Well, I'll try to make a long story short, but um, it was really by accident. I um, was, was very political in my youth. I dropped out of college in the late 1960s to work at a community organizer. Uh, when I went back to college, I had really drifted away from the church. I was raised as Episcopalian. Um, and one of the things that pulled me back into that loop was that somebody handed me a copy of Bonhoeffer's book on discipleship. Hmm. Um, and I read it and that, I realized suddenly that that was a language that I knew. And I found my way to the campus ministry, and that eventually led me to Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, But when I got to seminary, I was interested in political things. I wasn't looking to study Bonhoeffer, even though Eberhard Bethke, as it turns out, was teaching a Bonhoeffer course my first semester at Union, which I didn't take. uh, But I did hear him speak. But at Union, um, this was the late 1970s. It was the heyday of liberation theology. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and James Cohn and Beverly Harrison and Dorothy Zola were all teaching at Union, and that was my interest. Um, and my interest specifically became um, what happens in a church when you develop ideologically driven divisions mm-hmm. over the gospel. And I wrote my master's thesis on those debates within the Latin American Catholic Church um, about liberation theology. I went to the Bishop's Conference in Puebla, Mexico in 1979 as an observer um, and wrote my thesis on that conference. Um, I also fell in love with a fellow student who was German and ended up in Germany, which is how I got to study uh, this history, um, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have done so. But once I was in Germany, I started freelancing as a journalist and got interested in um, I, I, well, I actually, I interviewed somebody almost by accident who had been in the Confessing Church. And the only thing I knew about the Confessing Church was Bonhoeffer. Um, this person gave me a very different view of the Confessing Church, and I was fascinated by that. So I began to conduct oral histories with people who had been in the Confessing Church. This was during the 1980s. I was lucky enough to interview people like Martin Niemöller and Helmut Goldwitzer, but I also interviewed a lot of people who had just been, you know, regular pastors. Um, That turned into a book um, for the soul of the people. That book came out in 1992, which is when I returned to the United States. And that was what led me back into the Bonhoeffer circles, because the Bonhoeffer Society reached out to me um, and asked if I wanted to edit the new edition, the unabridged edition of Baker's biography. 
And one thing led to another. I got pulled into the Bonhoeffer works and the rest is, you know, Bonhoeffer. <laughs> wow. Uh, had you done translation work before or? No, I didn't speak German when I moved to Germany. This was really kind of a leap of faith and, and love. Um, so I took an intensive German course and I lived there for 13 years. So mm. I got very fluent. Um, and part of the process of doing all these oral histories was I also did historical research. I, and I, the, his, the interviews I conducted were all in German. Um, so I, you know, the, when the book came out, it was clear that I had done a lot of translation and that's what opened the way to my doing other translation work. Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask you next is, uh, do you have a, a lot of non-Bonhoeffer related translation work or is it mainly just the, the edited volumes? Um, yeah, so I translated a book on the Confessing Church um, called And the Witnesses Were Silent hmm. uh, by a man named Wolfgang Gerlach. So that's not, bon I mean, he, Bonhoeffer pops in there, but it's the book again about um, the anti-Semitism that was widespread in the Confessing Church. And then I've done, <clears throat> excuse me, translation in the course of my work at the Holocaust Museum, hmm. um, you know, much more broadly on, on, you know, various aspects of the historiography. Um, but, you know, most of it has been, by now, it's related to the Bonhoeffer works. Awesome. Um, so, usually, so every episode, I end with a desert island question about, so it's coming, um, <laughs> about uh, if you had to choose one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer on a desert island, which two would you go, go with? Um, almost everyone answers the Bet bibliography. Um, so... I I've, think I might leave it behind, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's what I was going to say. So I've, I've had that kind of every Bonhoeffer scholar telling me it's, it's the one you should, you should definitely read it. And obviously it's huge. Um, it's very big. And prepping for these interviews, I only have a limited amount of time to kind of read the Bonhoeffer books for the people that I'm, that I'm interviewing. And then I was like, how am I going to like, you know, get, have time to read this in the midst of it. I'm like, who would I talk to about this? And I went on Amazon and I was like, okay, I need to buy this. I have to read it eventually anyway. And then I was like, oh my goodness, Dr. Burnett is the translator for, for this or the editor translator. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did was I took the existing translation, um, which was an abridged version and they wanted the new unabridged version. So I translated the parts that they had left out. Um, and then I tweaked the translation as I went through, but I didn't do a complete retranslation. Okay. Um, how did you get set up with that? Was it just a random phone call from Fortress Press or? That was a random phone call on New Year's Eve from Clifford Green. I still remember it was New Year's Eve because I thought, who on earth is calling me? Um, <laughs> yeah, he said, we've got money to do this and we want this and would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, okay, you know, I don't have anything right now on my list and this would be an interesting project. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Um, so I, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about that biography. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, are, you work so extensively with it, you're probably the, the best person to talk to about it. Um, what do you think is different, I guess? I mean, I know that most of the biographies since that biography have kind of used that as a guide. Yeah. Um, but what do you think, why is everyone saying that for their, um, their Desert Island book? Yeah, um, so the Baker biography is, I would say, the definitive biography. It's, it's, a, it, it's a magisterial work. I mean, when you hear works described as that, because it, 
it so skillfully weaves together the history, the biography, and his theological development um, over time. And of course, it's written by someone who lived through much of that himself. I mean, Baker understood the period um, in many ways in that book, he's the fly on the wall because there are scenes he describes where he doesn't mention that he's there, but he was there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's an interesting, it's a fascinating book in that regard. Um, I will confess that when I finished work on the new unabridged edition, um, I put the book down and I remember saying to my husband, I said, um, you know, I still don't have any clue who Bonhoeffer was as a person. Mm. And that's one of the, I, I don't know if I would say it's a weakness of the book, but it's rather striking that you, you know, in you know, a thousand pages um, mm. of describing this person's life and you still think, so what was he really like? And I confess that I have the same feeling when I go through the Bonhoeffer works, that there aren't many glimpses. And I was talking about this with Christiana Tietz, the author of this new Bart biography, because her biography of Bart really gives you a sense of who he was. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating. The difference is fascinating. And I would say her work is magisterial in the sense that the Baker's is. It's a, it's a major work. Um, but so the question is why, you know, and I think partly it might just be that Bonhoeffer as a personality was very reserved and rather Prussian. Um, I think it's also that Baker as a close friend of Bonhoeffer who had married into the family um, and was very protective of them when he was writing a biography, um, you know, didn't want to go certain places. He didn't want to talk about certain things. Um, mm -hmm. So that those are some of the reasons, but it's frustrating because you, at this point in time, you know, decades after this book has been written, I almost wonder if we're ever going to get a sense of who Bonhoeffer was because so much has been buried. And a weakness of the Baker book is that there were certain things he left out, <clears throat> excuse me, certain things he didn't know about. Um, he met Bonhoeffer in 1935, so there's this whole period of Bonhoeffer's life that he didn't personally experience. Mm. Um, so there, you know, there are lots of things that I think scholars could still be doing. And I'm, in fact, I've been doing some digging on my own on some things because I'm trying to write my own book now. Um, but you're right that the Baker biography has really been the blueprint for every single biography that's out there. I mean, you read Metaxas, you read Marsh, you read Schlingenzeepen, they all basically follow that story and they're drawing on the material that was published in the Bonhoeffer works. So there's a, a universe of Bonhoeffer material that they're dealing with. Uh, the drawback is that over the decades since the 1950s, there is a universe of scholarship that casts a much different light on certain things and that tends to be missing if people draw only from the Baker material and the Bonhoeffer works. Yeah, um, that's, I'm so interested in that. Um, so a little bit of inside baseball for the listener. I, I sent an email to Dr. Burnett asking, hey, can we talk about this Baker biography that I would really like, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And then I got a response that essentially said, yes, I'd be glad to talk to you about that, but I'm working on something that um, kind of looks into the different lights uh, that the different aspects that maybe the biography missed. And I was thinking, okay, well, I have no further questions until the podcast because I have so many questions. Um, I know basically nothing about post-war struggles of, from almost any side. I mean, I was drawn to kind of the, the typical American um, reading biographies and watching movies about World War II and seeing like, wow, what a, what a crazy time. Yeah, I'm so disconnected from this. And, and, and then 
reading a Bonhoeffer biography, that's what got me in. So I, but I know there's almost no work on how Bonhoeffer has um, like the immediate after effects of the war and Bonhoeffer's reception there. Um, I guess uh, Stephen Haynes does a great job just in yeah. general with Bonhoeffer's reception. Um, but I know nothing about the fallout really. So I, I guess mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how, how all of that happened. I mean, and yeah. how, how that influences the biography. Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. So there were battles within the confessing church during the 1930s. I mean, at, in that historical moment. And Bonhoeffer, of course, was on a certain side of things um, and had ongoing battles with people on the other side. Bonhoeffer was pushing the church, um, I would say, in a more radical direction. Uh, you had a number, I would say the majority of people in the confessing church of the leaders uh, wanted to avoid antagonizing the regime and so were opting for a very cautious approach. Um, and Bonhoeffer's main cause was that you couldn't be in the same church with the pro-Nazi faction, mm -hmm. with the so-called Deutsche Christen, the German Christians, um, whom he didn't even view as, as faithful Christians. I mean, he said, this is an ideologically driven movement. This is not a Christian church. And so there were, you know, the, the story of the confessing church in the 1930s is the ongoing conflict um, about this. Those debates continued after 1945. <laughs> um, and one of the interesting things after 1945 is that many of Bonhoeffer's students, including Eberhard Becke, were hoping that when the German Protestant church came back together, um, it would do so in the spirit of the confessing church and maybe even shape itself differently as an institution. There was talk about it not being supported by church taxes, by it reconstituting itself as a, as a free church. Um, and all of this talk was very quickly squashed uh, in 1945 by the leaders who emerged and said, nope, we've got we've to pull things back together. So here we are again, German Protestant church. So they reconstituted themselves um, institutionally, at least along the lines that existed. And this was a big disappointment um, to the circles that had been around Bonhoeffer. And in fact, they kind of kept their own confessing church going well into the 1950s. Um, but the, the personal divisions were, were bitter. And so one of the things I realized as I've you know, worked on the Baker biography is the way in which he kind of settled some scores. Uh, his portrayal of certain people is the way Bonhoeffer saw them. I mean, if Bonhoeffer had a feud with somebody, that plays out in the biography. Um, and in my own research, one of the inst interesting moments I had was years ago in the church archives in Geneva of the ecumenical movement, I was reading through the letters of Willem Wissertuft, who was the head of the ecumenical movement, knew Bonhoeffer. Um, and I found a letter that he wrote to Baker after the biography came out. So this was the late 1960s. And he said, you know, he praised the biography in many ways. And then, and there's, there's a sort of this line, but you got this person wrong. You got that person wrong. This isn't quite the way this happened. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Um, so there's a way in which I would say, Bake, uh, you know, his portrayal of this is Bonhoeffer's side of the story. And often I would say it's, it's a legitimate, you know, you know, replication. I mean, it, it's, it's not false. Mm -hmm. uh, but to be aware when you read certain things that it's without lens. Um, the other thing is that, is that there were things that Baker didn't look at. One of the things I really looked at in my own book, uh, For the Soul of the People, was 
um, the women in the confessing church who were fighting for ordination throughout the 1930s. I interviewed a number of them. Uh, this was a story that really hadn't been told. Um, so you've got a radical feminist movement in the confessing church that is moving for ordination and also trying to push the church in a politically different direction. Uh, Bonhoeffer doesn't seem to have cared at all about this. I mean, this doesn't pop up in the Bonhoeffer works. Mm -hmm. He doesn't support the women's fight for ordination, although certain other males like Thomas Goldwitzer did. So this wasn't part of his story. And so it's not told in the Baker biography, but it's important um, both for seeing the full picture of the confessing church. And I would say it gives an insight into Bonhoeffer, the fact that he wasn't with this particular didn't align himself with this particular group in the church. So there are, there are things that don't find their way into the biography. There are sides of the story that are told very much um, from Baker's perspective. And I would add that in the 1950s, when he was first beginning to work on the biography, as I said, he, was, he wanted to tell the Bonhoeffer side of the story. Um, in the 1950s, he was on the losing side of that argument because the people who rose back to the top were the people with whom Bonhoeffer had feuded. Um, and, and so, you know, when I first, the first time I interviewed Baker was in, the, was in 1985. And I remember him saying to me, just almost in passing, sometimes I feel like I'm always on the losing side of history. Mm. And I thought, that's an interesting comment. Um, I, I, I have come to understand it better as I've looked at the development of the biography. Um, you know, the other thing I would add, is, and I think Bonhoeffer scholars maybe aren't aware of this, but I've become very aware of it in my own digging. Um, the Bonhoeffer family really came under attack um, in 1945 uh, by members of the resistance who had survived and blamed Hans von Donani, who was married to Bonhoeffer's sister, Christine, uh, blamed both the Donanis for betraying the resistance under interrogation. Uh, Christine von Donani had also been imprisoned briefly by the Gestapo. Mm -hmm. um, the rumors that got put out were that she had cracked under, under pressure and had betrayed information that led to the discovery of material that ultimately led to the executions of all these people. And it was a serious charge. Um, and this came at a moment when the family was absolutely shattered. They had just lost two sons and two sons-in-law. Mm -hmm. um, Christine was newly widowed and really wrestling with that. And so the, the epilogue that is at the end of the Baker biography um, about the Zussin files, which is written by Christine Fontanati, is written because she felt like she had to give her side of that story. And so there's a way in which Baker is also trying to push back against certain things in the post-war environment. So there are a lot of kind of, I would say, undertones and hidden agendas in that biography that if you're alert for them, um, make the reception history all the more interesting. Oh, <laughs> that blows me away. I had no idea. It's totally like there's Austin Files at the end. Right, there's, yeah. You don't pick up that up at all, but here's why this is in here to set the record straight. It's just like, let me add a little bit more details into the things that are happening. And she wanted that in there. And over time, I would say the Baker version and, and her version is the one that has won out. Huh. But when you look back at the literature of the other people and read theirs, I mean, you know, there's, there's this ongoing clash um, that, you know, Baker, there were certain people that Baker feuded with till the end of his life. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Wow.
Do you know what caused, you said in the 1950, the, um, or in the 1950s, that the confessing church sort of fizzled out or uh, you know, disappeared. Yeah. Do you know if there was any events that, that actually led to that really happening or is it, was it just a long, slow decline? I, w I would say it was, it was a long, slow decline. And, you know, look, they had lost the war. I mean, the Evangelical Church of Germany was there. They were pastors in it. Um, and so I think many of them chose to, and, and of necessity, um, continued to fight those battles within that church. Over time, I would say they really had an influence. I mean, people like Helmut Golditzer, Martin Niemöller, Kurt Scharf. Um, there were a number of people who had been in the Confessing Church who helped make the Evangelical Church of Germany a very different church. Mm -hmm. So that even though it was institutionally, um, you know, sort of had the same form, um, it did become a very different church than what had existed in 1933. So they, you know, they transformed it from within, but there wasn't a separate confessing church, um, except to some extent within the East in the German Democratic Republic, because the head of that church uh, was a Bonhoeffer student, a man named Albrecht Schönherr, who became a very influential, who became the influential uh, bishop of the East German church. And in that context, in his own um, way, I think, was trying to continue that, that legacy um, in the East. I had a chance to interview Schönherr for my, my book, and it was interesting to hear him talk about that. Wow. So I, I interviewed Laura Fabricki a couple times on this podcast. She's great. And uh, something that she told me was um, that, that she, she found out kind of in her research was that the like, household German I didn't have a working knowledge of, of really what happened in the Holocaust until a, a documentary series many years later that the mm. families really kind of grasped what actually happened. Mm. I, I'm wondering, uh, do you know if what the church struggle was like after that? I mean, what was the timeline for, I guess, the war ending and kind of the real realization of these atrocities and then, then the church struggle was, was that, what was the timeline there? So I would, I would say that somewhat differently. I mean, I, I think part of the reality is that Germans in the 1930s and 40s, if they wanted to, knew quite well what was going on. Okay. Um, it was visible. There were camps and prisons across Germany. Um, when I worked at the Holocaust Museum, one of my colleagues was working on a long-term process documenting the um, Nazi network of prisons, concentration camps, deportation camps, you know, the, the whole prison camp system. Um, and when he started, he had, you know, 6,000 um, across the, the Reich. I mean, eventually, you know, in Nazi-occupied territory as well. Uh, but by the time, you know, I retired, it was up to 42,000. Um, so that's a lot of camps and prisons, and in a single city like Hamburg, you had, you know, maybe 600 different variations of this, so it wasn't off, it, it was visible if you wanted to know about it, and, and that was one of the things that drove, um, I would say, the resistance in the, in the confessing church, the, the people who were really outraged by, by the police state and the persecution of the Jews, um, and so after 1945, you continue to have these tensions. I mean, Martin Niemöller was very open about this in 1945, mm. where he said, we were guilty. We knew what was going on and we didn't speak out as a church. Wow. Um, so that, that debate also 
bubbles throughout the, the 50s and 60s because you have other people who just want to put it all behind them and don't want to confront that past. Um, I think that, that with the late 1960s, um, and part of that was generational, that you had the first post-war generation of Germans you know, becoming adults and asking their parents what they had done. Mm. Um, and you had the student revolts and you had a, the beginning of a much more critical look at Nazi history. Um, it did then, I think, culminate in that broadcast in the late 1970s that Laura Fabriki was talking about, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden you have a, a nationwide broadcast that, you know, sort of confronts Germans with the fact that they still haven't really addressed this. And that did launch during the 1980s, a process, and this was while I was living in Germany, a process of local communities beginning to look much more honestly at their own history. Um, so there, there is kind of this process. The other thing is that in the 1950s, many of the people who had been in the confessing church um, sort of quite, you know, cast their light in a, in a, cast their record in a very favorable light. So there, a real hagiography developed. Um, and you had people portraying themselves as very, as having heroically resisted uh, the Nazis where in fact, you know, their record was much, much worse. Um, and so the undoing of that historiography didn't really start to take place till I would say 1960s, 1970s, um, 1980s. I mean, the, the books that, you know, my own book on the Confessing Church, you know, has a very critical chapter on its, um, you know, its record with regard to the persecution of Jews and works by people like Robert Erickson, Doris Bergen, um, you know, the, all those books sort of came out in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, but so it took, you know, a good 30, 40 years um, for that that more honest history to begin to come out, even with regard to the confessing church. And I think, you know, there's still a need for that with regard to Bonhoeffer's own record. I mean, that one of the problems with the Baker biography being as central as it is, is that you know, you've got a narrative that is frozen in time and the time in which it's frozen is the time in which Baker wrote it. And in the meantime, we've got a lot of historical work that sheds different light on certain things that needs to be taken into account. Do we have any, uh, you think any other information that kind of informs us a bit more about Betka? Um, I'm, so, I'm sort of uh, new to Bonhoeffer studies. I know that there, you said you interviewed him a few times. Uh, yeah. Do we have any, uh, like, have you realized in your research after kind of comparing it to this biography that, um, that events maybe have been, were different around his life or around his relationship with Bonhoeffer? Yeah, one, one of the things that I wish, um, so there is a little biography of Eberhard Baker that John DeGrushi wrote um, about 10, 15 years ago. And I actually, we, we were originally going to co-author that. So he and I went through all the Baker papers while they were still in Bad Godesburg together. Um, and then I pulled out of the project for other reasons, but that, that book is out there. I think that that um, it, it would be good for people to really think about Baker. And my perspective on that right now, and it's interesting, I mentioned I'm writing my own Bonhoeffer book, and it's really kind of starting with, with Baker. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he was so central, and he was, um, he came into Bonhoeffer's life in 1935 at a time when I think Bonhoeffer needed somebody he could rely on. And Baker was this 
easygoing, generous, straightforward, no drama, steadfast personality um, that you could, you felt you could trust, uh, very congenial, you know, really willing to help scholars. I mean, he was wonderful when I interviewed him. You know, he didn't know me from whatever, and I was just starting out, and he took all this time to explain things and answer questions, and he was like that throughout his life. You know, he died in 2000, so on top of the, the biography, you have five decades of Eberhard Beek uh, answering people's questions and shaping the narrative, um, and that gives a certain depth. It also um, impose certain limitations because I think the big layer of interpretation is so heavy on the Bonhoeffer narrative that we really need to step outside of that. Um, mm. there, were, there were key people that he didn't know. One of the ones I've come across recently is a man named Felix Gilbert, who was a very close friend of Bonhoeffer's from the 1920s, from the school days. Um, was of Jewish descent. I mean, his family had converted, but he was affected by the racial laws, left Nazi Germany in 1933. Um, but Gilbert visited Bonhoeffer in London. He stayed in touch with him. He had lunch with him in New York in 1939. And in 1945, Gilbert was an American GI who was sent back into Germany. And one of the first things he did was go back and visit the family. Mm -hmm. So this was somebody who really knew Bonhoeffer in the pre baker period. And I think Baker just didn't know that, which is kind of stunning because Gil some of Gilbert's recollections are very interesting. Yeah. So there's a way in which once you step outside that Baker universe, um, you begin to see some new things. And, and that's, that's important. Uh, but back to Baker himself, um, I think that one of the things he did in Finkenwalde, which is where he met Bonhoeffer, was he quickly... Um, became someone that Bonhoeffer could rely on. Baker oversaw things. Uh, when Bonhoeffer began to travel, Baker was the one who wrote round letters. I mean, the last two years of that project after Finkenwald itself was shut down, um, Baker did a lot of the administration. And then Baker was pulled into some of the resistance activities. So he, as I said, was, was an eyewitness um, but also a figure in his own right. And he was very modest and sort of kept himself out of the story um, in a way that I think sometimes distorts it. Um, so he's, he's an important figure, not just as the interpreter, um, but as someone who had his own take on that history. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, well, I mean, I could talk to you all day um, about this, and um, I'm sure you could too, um, but I, I won't take too much more of your time. I, do, I really appreciate this. I do want to get into that last question. I always, it's basically just a way to get book recommendations. Um, so the game Desert Island, you have, you get one book by Bonhoeffer and one book, uh, a secondary source about Bonhoeffer it could be a biography or it could just be a book on his theology. Um, what books are you going with? And actually, if you have more than one, it's totally fine. <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. Which ones do you um, like? I, you know, I think I would take ethics with me. Hmm. Um, I, I continue to reread that and see new things in it, especially in the historical context. Um, and in terms of a biography, I'm sort of the curmudgeon in Bonhoeffer world because I criticize all the biographies. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I mean, it's partly because I, I look at things and I say, that's not right. Yeah. Um, but so I, um, I think I, at this point, I don't think we need another biography, but I would love to see some 
studies that put Bonhoeffer on the larger historical stage, because I think that's what we've lost mm -hmm. by focusing so narrowly, narrowly on the Bacon narrative is just a final comment, which gives you insight into that question. When I was interviewing people who had been at the Confessing Church in the 1980s, um, of course, I was not writing, I was deliberately not writing a book on Bonhoeffer, but Bonhoeffer was the name I knew. And so a lot of times I would ask people, did you know Bonhoeffer? What was he like? And it was interesting, the number of people who said to me, you know, I never heard of him until after 1945. Hmm. These were people who had been in the confessing church. They lived through that period. And if they didn't hear of Bonhoeffer until later, um, that means that he's not front and center in the church struggle the way we think he tends to be. And so just to get that broader perspective and see that he's one young man on a much bigger stage, um, I think that, so the other book that I would, I would suggest, but it's only available in German, um, but that, that kind of pulls him into that larger stage is Marika Schmidt's wonderful book about Hans and Christine von Donani. Uh, because she is looking at them, not Bonhoeffer. Um, and that's the kind of bigger stage that sort of gives a different perspective on, on, on the family, on some of what Bonhoeffer himself did. Um, and things like that, I think, that, that kind of don't make Bonhoeffer front and center are um, the, the things that Bonhoeffer scholars should, should be looking at. And then going back and rereading Bonhoeffer from that light, yeah. Uh, because then you then you see some things differently. Yeah, I think I, I think especially just how I got into Bonhoeffer studies, um, being an evangelical, reading you know reading, I read the Metaxas biography and then I read uh, I think discipleship. Just kind of yeah. uh, it, it kind of paints him as this sort of this one lone superhero in a time where the world's going to chaos and only one person will stand up and then he sacrifices his life. Um, and I think the more I get into this realizing that there are, you know, more, <laughs> I, I, I could theorize, yeah, there, there are a bunch of moving parts here, but now as more and more I get into it, you sort of see that it's just, he's just a part of the story of, of a much bigger story. And yeah, and just I, learning I, that he was in his context, he wasn't the one person standing there saying the things that he was saying. Not only that, but he was a work in progress, like we all are. And there were people in the confessing church in the 1930s who were much more radically outspoken and much more consistently in opposition than he was. Mm. So to recognize that he himself failed in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I think that we should read the prison letters in that sense that I think that's, you know, that the 1940s is when he realizes and acknowledges how he and his nation have failed. And to read Bonhoeffer, um, from that perspective, I think is actually a very helpful thing for us today. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'm trying to push that interpretation. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Uh, the thing that came to mind when you mentioned that Becca said that he feels like he's always on the losing side of history yeah. was letters and papers. It seems very resigned to identify with sort of the, um, like Luther's theology of the cross of a hidden yeah. God and weakness that, yeah. um, that, that that's how he was, getting through that. Um, it just, yeah, it made me think of when, Be when I hear Becca say that, I'm like, oh, that sounds like Bonhoeffer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, that's, it's interesting, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you You're just welcome. for your willingness to do this. Um, obviously, when 
whenever your book is done and you're putting it out, please come back. We would love to hear from you and, and we can walk through that and kind of give it a shout out. Um, that, that'd be great. Um, yeah. Um, so thank you. Yeah. The Becca biography, you can get it on Amazon. Um, and, um, your, your other book about the confessing church, what was the title of it? For the soul of the people, Protestant protest against Hitler. And that's also still on Amazon. Perfect. All right. Well, I, I will be reading that as well. So thank you again. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash bonhoefferpod. Also, special thank you to Diego Reeve, Soren Jensen, and Kevin Dykstra for their support of the podcast through Patreon. I'm interested in expanding the Patreon to include a reading group to work through the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works. If you're interested at all in joining the group as a part of the Patreon, please let me know. Uh, you can email me at bonhoefferpod at gmail.com or contact me on Twitter at bonhoefferpod. Thank you all so much for your support, and I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you.